Today I said that I would speak about the final eruption of what I last time called unbridled romanticism. The three great tendencies, according to August Wilhelm Schlegel, who I suppose wrote most authoritatively about this movement and was indeed a part of it himself, the three great trends which most profoundly influenced the entire movement, both aesthetically and morally and politically, were, in this order, the theory of knowledge of Fichte, the French Revolution, and Goethe's famous novel, Wilhelm Meister. I think this is probably a just attribution, and I should like to make it clear why this was so, or in what sense. I spoke to you last time about Fichte and about his glorification of the active, dynamic, and imaginative self. The innovation which Fichte brought into both theoretical philosophy and the theory of art and to some extent of life was, roughly speaking, this one. He accepted the view of the empiricists of the 18th century that there was some problem about what was meant by speaking about oneself. Hume had said that when he looked within himself, as people normally do when he introspected, he discovered a great many sensations, emotions, fragments of memory, fragments of hope and fear, all kinds of small psychological units, as it were, but he failed to perceive any entity which could justly be called a self. And therefore concluded that the self was not a thing, not an object of direct perception, but perhaps simply a name for the concatenation of experiences, simply a kind of string which held together the onions out of which human personality and human history was formed, except that there was no string. This proposition was accepted on the whole by, certainly by Kant, who then made valiant efforts to recapture some kind of self, but much more passionately by the German romantics, in particular Fichte, who laid down the doctrine that it was quite natural that the self should not emerge in cognition. When you are wholly absorbed in an object, whether in looking at a material object in nature, or in, let us say, listening to sounds, music or something else, or in any other kind of process in which there is an object before you in the contemplation of which you are wholly absorbed, then naturally you are pro tanto not aware of yourself as the absorber. You become aware of a self only when there is some kind of resistance. You become aware of yourself not as an object, but as that which is obtruded against by some kind of recalcitrant reality. It is when you are looking at something and something intervenes, when you are listening to something and there is some kind of obstacle, it is the impact of the obstacle upon you which makes you aware of yourself as an entity different from the not-self, as it were, which you are trying in some sense to understand or to feel or perhaps to dominate, conquer, alter, mold, at any rate do something to or at. And therefore, the Fichtean doctrine, which then becomes the orthodox doctrine of not only the Romantic movement, but of a great deal of psychology besides, is that the I, the self in that sense of the word, is not the same as me. Me is something which no doubt you can introspect, which psychologists talk about, which scientific treatises can be written about, an object of some kind of inspection, an object of study, an object of psychology, sociology, and the like. But there is a kind of non-accusative I, the primal nominative, which you only become aware of not at all in the act of cognition, but simply through being impacted upon. And this he called the Anstoß, the impact. And it appeared to him to be the fundamental category which dominated all experience. That is to say that when you asked yourself what reason you had for supposing that the world existed, what reason you had for supposing you were not deluded, what reason you had for supposing that uh, solipsism was not true and that everything was not a figment 
of your imagination, or in some other way wholly delusive and deceiving, the answer was that you could not doubt that some kind of clash or collision occurred between you and what you wanted, between you and what you wished to be, between you and the stuff upon which you wished to, as it were, impose your personality and which pro tanto resisted. In the resistance emerged the self and the not-self. Without the not-self, no sense of the self. Without the sense of the self, no sense of the not-self. This was, so to speak, a primary datum, more radical, more basic, than anything which later supervened upon it or could be deduced from it. The world, as described by the sciences, was in some sense an artificial construction relatively to this absolutely primary, irreducible, fundamental datum, not even of experience, but of being. This is, roughly speaking, Fichte's doctrine. And from this he expands the whole vast vision which then proceeds to dominate the imaginations of the Romantics, by which the only thing which is worthwhile, as I tried to say last time, was the exfoliation of this particular self, its creative activity, its imposition of forms upon matter, its penetration of other things, its creation of values, its dedication of itself to these values. And this, of course, can have its political implications. I also, I think, hinted at last time, if the self is no longer identified with the individual, but with some superpersonal entity, such as a community, or a church, or a state, or a class, which then becomes this huge, intrusive, forward-marching will, which imposes its particular personality upon both the outside world and upon its own constituent elements, constituent elements which might be composed of human beings, who then are reduced to the role of simply being ingredients of or parts in, in some much bigger, much more impressive, much more historically persistent personality. Let me read you a passage from Fichte's famous speeches to the German nation, delivered when Napoleon um, had conquered Prussia. This speech was delivered to not very many people and had no great impact as when it was delivered Fichte was a poor speaker and coughed a great deal during his delivery. Nevertheless, when they were read afterwards, it produced a vast nationalist upsurge of feeling and went on being read by Germans throughout the 19th century and became their Bible after 1918. I shall not attempt to read much more to you than a few lines out of the, this little book of lectures, which will indicate the kind of tone and the kind of propaganda which Fichte at this period was engaged in making. He says, either you believe in an original principle in man, a freedom, a perfectibility, an infinite progress of our species, or you believe in none of this. You may even have a feeling or some kind of intuition of its opposite. All those who have within them a creative quickening of life, or else, assuming that such a gift has been withheld from them, at least await the moment when they are caught up in the magnificent torrent of flowing in original life, or have some confused presentiment of such freedom and have towards this phenomenon not hatred, nor fear, but a feeling of love, these are part of primal humanity. These may be considered as a true people. These constitute the Urvolk, the primal people. I mean the Germans. <laughs> All those, on the other hand, who have resigned themselves to represent only the derivative, the second-hand product, who think of themselves in this way, become such an effect, and shall pay the price of their belief. They are a mere annex to life. Not for them those pure springs which flowed before them and which still may be flowing around them. They are but an echo coming from a distant rock, from a voice which is now silent. They are excluded from the Urfolk. They are strangers, they are outsiders. The nation which bears the name of German to this day has not ceased to give evidence of a creative and original activity in the most diverse fields. He then goes on. And this is the principle of exclusion that I adopt all those who believe in spiritual reality, 
those who believe in the freedom of the life of the spirit, those who believe in the eternal progress of the spirit and through the instrumentality of freedom, whatever be their native land, whatever the language which they speak, they are our race, they are part of our people, or they will join it later or soon. All those who believe in arrested being, in retrogression, in eternal cycles, even those who believe in inanimate nature and put her at the helm of the world, whatever be their native country, whatever be their language, they are not Germans, they are strangers to us, and one would hope that one day they would be wholly cut off from our people. Now, this is, of course, I mean, to do, do Fichte justice was not a chauvinistic German sermon, because I think by Germans, he meant, Hegel meant all the Germanic peoples. Perhaps it doesn't make it very much better, but perhaps a little better. It includes, it includes the French, it includes the French, it includes the English, it includes all the Nordic peoples, and it includes some of the Mediterranean peoples as well. But even so, the heart of the sermon is not simply patriotism or simply an attempt to arouse the waning German spirit crushed under the heel of Napoleon. The main thing is this broad distinction between those who are alive and those who are dead, those who are echoes and those who are voices, those who are annexes and those who are the genuine articles, those who are the genuine building. That is Fichte's fundamental distinction. And this really bounded spell upon the mind of a great many young Germans born somewhere around the late 1770s and early 1780s. The fundamental notion is not cogito ergo sum, but volo ergo sum. Curiously enough, the French psychologist Maine de Biron, writing it about the same time, was developing the same kind of psychology, that personality was only to be learned through effort, through trying, through hurling yourself against some obstacle which made you feel yourself holy. In other words, you only felt yourself properly in a moment of resistance or opposition. Mastery, Titanism, is what, of course, this leads to as an ideal, both in private and in public life. Let me say a few words, although it's very unjust to him to do so, about the somewhat analogous, but in certain respects profoundly different doctrine of Fichte's younger contemporary Schelling, who I suppose had a greater influence on Coleridge, certainly, than any other thinker, and certainly a, a profound influence upon German thought as well. Though he's very seldom read now, partly because most of his works appear today exceedingly opaque, not to say unintelligible. Schelling says that Unlike Fichte, who distinguished between the living principle of the human will and nature, which was, as it were, as in Kant, dead stuff to be molded, as opposed to some harmony to be fitted into, Schelling maintained a mystical vitalism. For him, nature was itself something alive, a kind of spiritual self-development. He saw the world as something which begins in a state of brute unconsciousness and gradually comes to consciousness of itself, beginning, as he says, from the most mysterious beginnings, beginnings from the dark, developing, unconscious will. It gradually grows to self-consciousness. Nature is unconscious will. Man is will come to consciousness of itself. Nature has various stages of the will. Every stage of nature is a will in some stage of its development. First, there are the rocks and the earth, which are the will in a state of total unconsciousness. This is an ancient Renaissance doctrine, not even to go further to Gnostic sources. Then gradually life enters into them, and there is the early life of the first biological species, and then come the plants, and then come the animals, the progressive self-consciousness, the progressive beating of the will through towards the realization of some kind of purpose. Nature strives after something, but is not aware that it strives for it. Man begins to strive and becomes aware of what that he is striving for. By striving successfully for whatever it is that he may be striving for, he brings the whole universe to higher consciousness of itself. For Schelling, God was, roughly speaking, a kind of self-developing principle of consciousness. Yes, he said, God is Alpha and Omega. 
Alpha is unconscious, omega is full consciousness come to itself. God is a kind of progressive phenomenon, a sort of form of creative evolution, from which indeed Bergson took it, for there is very little in Bergson's doctrine which was not previously in Schelling. This is the doctrine which, of course, had a very profound influence upon, certainly upon German aesthetic philosophy and the philosophy of art. Because if everything in nature is living, and if we ourselves are simply its most self-conscious representatives, the function of the artist is to delve within himself, and above all, delve within the dark and unconscious forces which move within himself, and in some way bring these to consciousness by the most agonizing and violent struggle within himself. That is Schelling's doctrine. Nature does this too. There are struggles within nature, every volcanic eruption, every phenomenon such as magnetism and electricity was by Schelling in some way interpreted as being a struggle for self-assertion on the part of blind, mysterious forces, except that in man they became half-conscious. The only works of art for him which have any value at all, and this is a doctrine which not only Coleridge but other art critics were subsequently influenced by, the only works of art which have any value at all are works of art which are similar to nature in some way in conveying the pulsations of a not wholly conscious life. Any work of art which is fully self-conscious is a kind of photograph for him. Any work of art which is simply a copy, which is simply a piece of knowledge, something which, like science, is simply the product of careful observation and then of noting down in scrupulous terms of what you have seen in a fully lucid, accurate, and scientific manner, that is death. Life in a work of art is the analogous, some kind of common quality which it has with what we admire in nature, namely some kind of power, force, energy, life, vitality bursting forth. And that is why the great portraits, the great statues, the great works of music are called great because we see in them not merely the surface. We see in them not merely the technique. We see in them not merely the form which the artist perhaps consciously imposed, but also something of which the artist may not be wholly aware, namely the pulsations within him of some kind of infinite spirit of which he happens to be the particularly articulate and self-conscious representative, the pulsations of the spirit, which are also at a lower level pulsations of nature, so that the work of art has the same effect, the same vitalizing effect upon the man who looks at it or who listens to it as certain phenomena of nature. When this is lacking, when the whole thing is wholly conventional, so to speak, done according to rules, done in full self-conscious blaze of complete awareness of what one is doing, the product is of necessity elegant, symmetrical, and dead. That is the fundamental romantic anti-enlightenment doctrine of art. And this, of course, has had a very considerable influence upon all critics who regard the unconscious as having some part, not merely the old platonic theories of divine inspiration and the ecstatic artist, who is not wholly aware of what he's doing, the Plato's doctrine of the ion, in which the god blows through the artist, and he doesn't know what it is that he's doing because something more powerful inspires him, as it were, from outside. But in all the doctrines which take an interest in and regard it as valuable to consider the element of the unconscious, subconscious, preconscious, and so forth, in the work either of the individual artist or of a group, a nation, a people, a culture. And this, of course, goes directly back to Herder, of whom I spoke to, who also regards folk song, folk dancing, and so forth, as the articulation of some kind of not wholly self-aware spirit within a nation and worthless unless it is that. Now, it cannot be said that Schelling wrote these things down with a very great deal of clarity. Nevertheless, he wrote very rhapsodically and had a very considerable effect upon his contemporaries. Let me tell you the first great doctrine which really emerges from this combination of Fichte's doctrine of the will and Schelling's doctrine of the unconscious, which are really the great formative factors in what might be called the aesthetic doctrine of the romantic movement and subsequently its political and ethical doctrines as well. 
And that is really, I think, it would be fair to say, the doctrine of symbolism. Symbolism is something which is very central in all romantic thought. That has always been noticed by all critics of this movement. Now, let me try and make this as clear as I'm able, although I don't claim to understand it entirely. I don't claim to understand it entirely because, as Schelling very rightly says, what romanticism truly is, is a wild wood, a labyrinth, in which the only guiding thread is the will and the mood of a poet. As I'm no poet, I cannot altogether trust myself to give you a full exposition of this particular doctrine, but I shall do my best. There are two kinds of symbols, to put it its very simplest. There are conventional symbols and symbols of a somewhat different kind. Conventional symbols offer no difficulty. They are symbols which we invent for the purpose of meaning certain things, and there are rules about what they mean. The red and green traffic lights mean what they mean by convention. Red lights means that motor cars may not pass, and they are simply another form of saying, do not pass. Do not pass is itself a form of symbolism, linguistic symbolism, which itself stands for some kind of ban on the part of persons in authority and holds within it some kind of threat, a perfectly understood threat, that if you disobey this particular order, dire consequences may follow. Now, this is ordinary symbolism such as it is in, for example, artificially invented languages, scientific treatises, and any kind of conventional symbolism invented for a specific purpose where the meaning of the symbol is laid down by rule. But there obviously are symbols not quite of this kind. I don't wish to enter into the theory of symbolism in general. But for my particular purpose, what these people meant by symbolism was symbolism for something which could only be expressed symbolically and could not be expressed literally. The traffic situation is such that if instead of the green and red light you were to put up signs saying stop or go, or if instead of that you even placed persons of obvious authority to cry through megaphones stop and go, this would serve its purpose in a certain sense equally well, at least so far as grammatical purposes are concerned. Now, if you ask, for example, in what sense a national flag waving in the wind which arouses emotions in people's breasts is a symbol, or in what sense the Marseillaise is a symbol, or to go a little further, in what sense, for example, say a cathedral is a, quite apart from the question, apart from its function as a building in which religious rites occur, or in which religious services occur, in what sense a Gothic cathedral built in a particular way is a symbol for some kind of for the particular religion which it houses, or in what sense sacred dances are symbols, um, or in what sense any kind of religious ritual is a symbol, whatever it may be, or in what sense the Kaaba stone is a great symbol to the Muslims. The answer will be that what it symbolizes is literally not expressible in any other way. If you say, would you spell out for me what it is that the word England stands for in the sentence, England expects every man to do his duty, let us say, when Nelson said it. And then you begin to spell out, you say England means a certain number of persons um, a certain number of featherless bipeds with reason uh, inhabiting a certain island at a particular moment in the early 19th century. Well, it clearly doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean any particular, it doesn't simply mean a group of persons with names and addresses known to Nelson, whom, whom in some sort of way he could, if he wished and took enough trouble, spell out. It plainly doesn't mean that because the whole emotive force of the word England extends over something both vaguer and profounder. And if we say, what exactly is it that the word England stands for here? Would you, so to speak, unpack it? Would you unpack it? Would you give me, um, however tedious it may be, the literal equivalent of what this is simply shorthand for? This will not be easy to do. Nor will it be very easy if you say, what is it that the Kaaba stone stands for? What is it that this, this particular sacred, this prayer stands for? What is it that this cathedral means to the people who come to worship in it, apart from associations of a vaguely emotional kind, apart from a penumbra? It isn't simply that it arouses emotion. Emotion might be aroused by the singing of birds. Emotion might be aroused by a sunset, but a sunset is not a symbol, and the singing of birds is not symbolic.
But the cathedral is a symbol, a religious rite is a symbol, the raising of the host is a symbol to, to worshippers. And the question now arises, what is it symbolic of? Now, the whole of the Romantic doctrine maintained that there is an infinite striving forward on the part of reality, the universe around us. That there is something which was infinite, something which is in some sense inexhaustible, of which the finite attempts to be the symbol, but of course cannot be. You seek to convey something which you can only convey by such means as you have at your command, but you know that this cannot convey the whole of what you are seeking to convey because this whole is literally infinite. That is why allegories are used. That is why symbols are used. An allegory is a representation in words or in paint of something which has its own meaning but also stands for something other than itself. When an allegory stands for something other than itself, that which it stands for, for those who really believe in allegories and who say that the only mode of profound speech is allegorical, as Schelling believed, as the Romantics in general believed, what the allegory stands for is ex hypothesi, not statable itself. And that is why the allegory has to be used. And that is why allegories and, and, and symbols are of necessity the only mode which I have of conveying that which I wish to convey. Now, what is it that I wish to convey? I wish to convey, of course, this stream of which Fichte speaks. I wish to convey something immaterial, and I have to use material means for it. I have to convey something which is inexpressible, and I have to use expression. I have to use, I have to convey perhaps something unconscious, and I have to use conscious means. And I know in advance that it won't succeed and cannot succeed, and therefore all I can do is to get nearer and nearer in some asymptotic approach. I do my best, but it is an agonizing struggle in which if I'm an artist or indeed any kind of self-conscious thinker for the German romantics, I'm engaged in the whole of my life. In a certain sense, this is something to do with the notion of depth. The notion of depth is something with which philosophers seldom deal. Nevertheless, it is a concept perfectly susceptible to treatment, and indeed one of the most important of the categories that we use. When we say that a work is profound or deep, quite apart from the fact that this is obviously a metaphor, I suppose, from Wells, which are profound and deep, when one says that someone is a profound writer or a profound picture or a work of music is profound, it's not very clear what we mean, but we certainly do not wish to exchange it for some other word, such as beautiful or important or constructed according to rules or even immortal. When I say that Pascal is profounder than Descartes, although Descartes, no doubt, was a man of genius, or that Dostoevsky, whom I may or may not like, is a profounder writer than Tolstoy, whom I may like much better, or any of these things, so to speak, if I say that Kafka is a profounder writer than Hemingway, or something of that kind, if I say that, what exactly am I trying unsuccessfully, in a sense, to convey by means of this metaphor, which remains metaphorical because I have nothing better that I can use? According to the Romantics, and I think this is one of the principal contributions to understanding in general, According to the Romantics, what I mean by depth, although they don't discuss it under that name, is inexhaustibility, unembraceability. In the cases of what might be called beautiful but not profound, say, works of art or even pieces of prose fiction or philosophy, I can translate into perfectly lucid, literal terms. I can explain to you, say, about some musical work of the 18th century, well-constructed, melodious, agreeable, even perhaps a work of genius, why it is made and even why it gives pleasure. I can tell you that certain kinds of harmonies are the kinds of things which human beings feel a particular kind of pleasure in listening to. I can describe this pleasure perhaps quite minutely by all kinds of ingenious introspective devices. If I am a marvelous describer, if I am Proust, if I am Tolstoy, if I am a well-trained descriptive psychologist, I might succeed in giving you some kind of version of your actual emotions when listening to a particular piece of music. 
or reading a particular piece of prose, which is sufficiently similar to what in fact you are feeling or thinking at this particular moment, to be regarded as an adequate prose translation of what is occurring, scientific, true, objective, verifiable, and so on. In the case of works which are profound, the more I say, the more remains to be said. There is no doubt that although I attempt to describe it, it's quite clear, as soon as I speak, it becomes quite clear that no matter how long I speak, new chasms open. No matter how, what I say, I always have to leave three dots at the end. Whatever description I give always opens the doors to something further, something even darker perhaps, but certainly something which in principle is incapable of being reduced to precise, clear, verifiable, objective prose. And that being so, this I think is certainly one of the meanings of what is meant by profound. The notion of irreducibility, the notion that I am forced in discussing it, forced in describing it to use language which is in principle, not only today but forever, inadequate for its purpose. I do my best, but I know that it cannot be exhausted. And the more inexhaustible it seems to me to be, and the wider the region to which it seems to me to apply, the more chasms open, the deeper the chasms and the larger the number of them, put it very crudely. The wider the area of which they open, the more liable I am to say that this particular proposition is profound and not merely true or interesting or amusing or, or original or whatever else I might be tempted to say. When, for example, someone like Pascal says the, in the famous remark that the heart has its reason as well as the head, when Goethe says, no matter how hard we try, there will always be an irreducible element of anthropomorphism in everything we do and think. These remarks have struck people as profound for this reason, because wherever they apply them, they open new vistas. And these vistas are not reducible, not embraceable, not describable, not collectible, not as it were, you, you have no formula which will, by deduction, lead you to all of them. This, I think, is really the fundamental notion of depth in the Romantics, and this is what all this, not all, but most of this talk about the finite standing for the infinite, the material standing for the immaterial, the dead standing for the living, space standing for time, word standing for something which is in self wordless, this is what to a large degree it relates to. This is certainly, can the sacred be seized? asked Friedrich Schlegel. And he replied, no, it can never be seized because the mere imposition of form deforms it. And this is fundamentally what I think runs through the entire theory of life and of art. What this leads to, in a certain sense, are two quite interesting and obsessive phenomena, which then are really very present, both in 19th and in 20th century thought and feeling. One is nostalgia, and the other is paranoia of a certain kind. <laughs> nostalgia, the nostalgia is due to the fact that since the infinite cannot be exhausted, and since we are seeking, in some sense, to embrace it, nothing that we do will ever satisfy us. When Novalis was asked where he thought he was tending, what his art was in some sense about, he said, I'm always going home, always to my father's house, which was in a sense a religious remark. But what of course he meant was that all these attempts at the exotic, the strange, the foreign, the odd, all these attempts to emerge from the empirical framework of daily life, of writing fantastic stories with transformations and transmogrifications of the most peculiar kind, attempts at writing down stories which are symbolic or allegorical or contain all kinds of mystical and veiled references, esoteric imagery of the most peculiar kind which has preoccupied critics for years. These things are all attempts to go back, to go home to what is pulling and drawing him, this famous infinite Sehnsucht of the Romantics, this search for the blue flower, as Novalis called it. The search for the blue flower is an attempt to dissolve myself in the infinite in some sense, either to absorb it into myself, somehow or other to make myself at one with it, either to absorb it into myself or to dissolve myself into it. This is a secularized version, obviously, of that profound religious striving of being at one with God, of reviving the Christ within me, 
of making myself one with some of the creative forces of nature in some pagan sense, which comes to the Germans from Plato, from Eckhart, from Böhme, from German mysticism, from a number of other sources, except that here it takes a literary and a secular form. And this particular nostalgia is the very opposite of what the Enlightenment regarded as its particular contribution. The Enlightenment supposed that there was a closed, perfect pattern of life, as I tried to explain. There was some kind of form of life and of art and of feeling and of thought which was correct, which was right, which was true and objective and could be taught to people if only we knew enough. There was some kind of solution to our problems. And if only we could construct a structure which, according to the solution, and then proceed to fit ourselves, as it were, to put it crudely, into the structure, we would obtain answers both to problems of um, thought and to problems of action. But if this is not so, if ex hypothesi, the universe is a movement and not at rest, if it is a form of activity and not, so to speak, a lump of stuff, if it is infinite and not finite, if it is constantly varying and never still and never the same, to use these various metaphors which they constantly use, if it is a constant wave, says, uh, says Schlegel, how can we possibly, uh, even in trying to describe it, what are we to do when we describe a wave? We usually end up by producing a stagnant pool. When we try and describe the light, we can only describe it accurately by putting it out. Therefore, don't let's attempt to describe it, but of course you can't not attempt to describe it, because that means to stop expressing, but to stop expressing is to stop living. For these romantics to live is to do something. To do is to express your nature. To express your nature is to express your relation to the universe. Your relation to the universe is inexpressible, which you must nevertheless express. And this is the agony, this is the problem, this is the unending Sehnsucht, this is the yearning, this is the reason why we must go to distant countries, that is why we seek for exotic examples, that is why we travel in the East, that is why we write novels about the past, that is why we indulge in fantasies, and so on and so on. That, I think, is the typical romantic nostalgia. If the home for which they are seeking, if the harmony, the perfection about which they talk could be granted to them, they would reject it. It's very much because it is in principle something which they know, which is by definition something to which an approach can be made which cannot be seized, because that is the nature of reality. It's, it reminds one of that famous cynical story about someone who said to Dante Gabriel Rossetti uh, when he was writing about the Holy Grail, but Mr. Rossetti, when you have found the Grail, what will you do with it? Well, this is precisely the typical question which the Romantics knew very well how to answer. In their case, the Grail was in principle both undiscoverable and such that one could not avoid, could not stop, one's whole life could not be prevented from being a perpetual search for it. And that is because of the nature of the universe such as it is. It might have been different, but it isn't. The brute fact about the universe is that it isn't fully expressible, it isn't fully exhaustible, it isn't at rest, it is at motion, and this, so to speak, is the basic datum. And that is what we discover when we discover that the self is something of which we are only aware in effort. Effort is action, action is movement, movement is unfinishable, so to speak, a perpetual movement. That, I think, is the fundamental romantic image which I'm trying to convey as best I can in words which ex hypothesi cannot convey it. Now, the second notion, which is that of which I mentioned, which is that of paranoia, is something somewhat different. There is an optimistic version, of course, in Romanticism. What the Romantics feel is that by going forward, by expanding our nature, by destroying the obstacles in our path, whatever they may be, dead French rules of the 18th century, political and economic institutions of a destructive kind, laws, authority, any kind of cut-and-dried truth, any kind of either 
um, rules or uh, institutions which in some way are regarded as absolute, perfect, unappealable from. In doing this, we are liberating ourselves more and more and allowing our infinite nature to soar to greater and greater heights and become wider, deeper, freer, more vital, more like the divinity towards which it strives. But there is another version of the same thing, a more pessimistic version, which I think is, curiously enough, something which really obsesses the 20th century to some extent. There is the notion that although we, individuals, seek to liberate ourselves, yet the universe is not to be tamed in this easy fashion. There is something behind, there is something in the dark depths of the unconscious, or there is something in the dark depths of history, or there is something at any rate not seized by us which in some way frustrates our dearest wishes. Sometimes it's conceived as a kind of indifferent or even hostile nature. Sometimes it is conceived as the cunning of history which optimists think bear us ever towards more and more glorious goals, but pessimists think is simply, like Schopenhauer, for example, think that is simply a huge, fathomless ocean of undirected will upon which we bob like a little boat with no direction and no possibility of really um, either understanding the element in which we are or directing our course upon it. And this is a huge, powerful, ultimately hostile force to resist which, or even to come to terms with which, is never of the slightest use. It takes all kinds of other forms. It takes much more, much cruder forms. It takes the form of looking for all kinds of conspiracies in history, for example. People begin to think perhaps history is formed by forces over which we have no control. Someone is at the back of it all. Perhaps the Jesuits, perhaps the Jews, perhaps the Freemasons. This, of course, was much stimulated by attempts to explain the course of the French Revolution. Uh, we, and the enlightened, we, the virtuous, we, the wise, we, the good and the kind, seek to do this or that. But somehow, all our efforts end in nothing. And therefore, there must be some fearful hostile force which is, as it were, lying in wait for us and trips us up when we're on the brink, as we think, of great success. This takes, as I say, crude forms such as a conspiracy view of history by which we always look for concealed enemies, sometimes for larger, a larger conception such as, say, economic forces, the forces of production in Marx, or class war in Marx, or a much vaguer and more metaphysical notion of the cunning of reason or of history in Hegel, which understands its goal much better than we do and plays tricks upon us. Hegel says, the spirit cheats us, the spirit intrigues, the spirit lies, the spirit triumphs. It's, he almost conceives of it as a kind of huge, ironical, aristophanic sort of force, which uh, mocks uh, the poor human beings who are trying to construct their little uh, homes upon the slopes of what they regard as a green and flowery mountain, but which turns out to be the vast volcano of human history, which is about to erupt once again, ultimately perhaps for human good, ultimately in order to realize itself towards an ideal, but in the short run, destroying a large number of innocent persons and uh, causing a very great deal of suffering and of damage. This also is a romantic idea, because once you get the notion that there is outside us something larger, something unseizable, something unattainable, you either have feelings towards it of love, as Fichte wanted, or of fear. And if you have feelings of fear, it becomes paranoic. And this paranoia then goes on accumulating in the 19th century. It accumulates to a height in Schopenhauer. It dominates the works of Wagner. And it comes to an immense climax in all kinds of um, works in the 20th century, which obsessed by the thought of the fact that somehow, no matter what we do, there is some canker, in the, there's a worm in the bud somewhere. There is something which dooms us to perpetual frustration, whether it be human beings whom we must exterminate, or impersonal forces against which all effort is useless. Certainly, works by writers like Kafka, for example, are filled with this peculiar sense of undirected angst, 
of terror, of basic apprehension, which isn't fixated upon any um, identifiable object. And this is very true about the early Romantic works as well. If you read Tieck's stories, the Blonde Eckbert, for example, terror pervades it. In, in no doubt it's meant to be an allegory. But what always happens is that the hero begins by living happily, and then something terrible happens. Um, a golden bird appears before him, sings a song about Waldeinsamkeit, which is already a romantic concept about solitude in the woods of a half-delightful and half-terrifying sort. And then he kills the bird, and then various misfortunes follow, and he goes on killing, he goes on destroying, he gets enmeshed in a frightful net which some awful mysterious force has laid for him. He seeks to liberate himself from it. He murders more, he struggles, he fights, he goes under. This kind of nightmare is extremely typical of early German romantic writing. And it comes from exactly the same source, which is this notion of the will. The will as dominating life, not reason, not an order of things which can be studied and therefore controlled, but of some kind of will. So long as it is my will and the will directed towards ends which I myself manufacture, it is presumably benevolent. So long as it is the will of a benevolent deity or the will of a history which is guaranteed to bring me to a happy conclusion, as it is in all the um, optimistic writings of all the optimistic historical philosophers, that presumably is not too terrifying. But it may turn out that the end is much blacker and more, more, more terrifying and more unfathomable than I think. And so the romantics tend on the whole to oscillate between extremes of mystical optimism and appalling pessimism. And this gives our writings a peculiar kind of uneven quality. The French Revolution was the next event, the next item which I mentioned. Here too something must be said. The French Revolution had an obvious effect upon the Germans because, of course, it led, as a result of the Napoleonic Wars, in particular, to a vast burst of wounded national feeling, which certainly fed the stream of Romanticism insofar as it was an assertion of the national will, come what may. But it is not this aspect of it that I wish to stress. The aspect I wish to stress is that although the French Revolution promised a perfect solution to human ills, in a sense it was, it was so to speak, founded, as I, I think I said in my first lecture, upon what might be called peaceful universalism, the doctrine was that of unimpeded progress. The classical perfection was to be its goal. Once we arrived at that, it would last forever upon some kind of adamantine foundations laid by human reason. Nevertheless, the French Revolution didn't go the way it was intended. That was clear to all. And because it didn't, what it attracted attention to was not at all reason, peace, universalism, harmony, which universal freedom, equality, liberty, fraternity, not these things which it was stimulated to satisfy. But, on the contrary, it attracted attention to violence, the appalling, unpredictable change in human affairs, the irrationality of mobs, the enormous power of individual heroes, great men, evil and good, who were able to dominate these mobs and alter the course of history in all kinds of ways. It's really the poetry of action and the poetry of battle and the poetry of death which the French Revolution, in a certain sense, stimulated in people's minds and imaginations, not merely in Germany, but everywhere. And therefore, it had the exact opposite effect to that which it was intended to have. The thing which it particularly stimulated was the notion of a mysterious nine-tenths of the iceberg about which we didn't know enough. You see, the question was naturally bound to be asked, why was the French Revolution a failure in the sense that after it, it was fairly conspicuous that a large number of Frenchmen were not free, not equal, and not particularly fraternal. At any rate, a sufficiently large number to um, the cause of the problem that we asked. Although some of them, no doubt, had been, the lot of some of them had been improved, the lot of others had obviously deteriorated. And certainly the countries around them, although some persons had been liberated, other persons did not feel that this had been worthwhile. Well, the answer was, various answers were given, 
Those who believed in economics said that the political makers of the revolution ignored these facts. Those who believed in the monarchy or those who believed in the church said that the deepest instincts and the deepest faith of human nature had been flouted by atheistical materialism, which had naturally produced uh, consequences of a dreadful kind. And this was perhaps simply the punishment of human nature or of God in accordance with your particular philosophy upon some kind of defiance of it. But what it led everybody to suspect was that not perhaps enough was known. The, the, the doctrines of the French philosophers, which were supposedly a blueprint for the alteration of society in any desired direction, had in fact proved inadequate. And that therefore, although the upper portion, as it were, of social and human life, that which was visible to economists, psychologists, moralists, writers, students, every kind of scholar and observer of the facts, those portions were merely the tip of some huge iceberg of which vast section was sunk beneath the ocean floor. And this bit was invisible. And this was the bit which, so to speak, had been taken for granted a little too blandly and had therefore avenged itself by producing all kinds of exceedingly unexpected consequences. And the notion of unintended consequences, the notion of the fact that although you propose, it disposes, although you alter, nevertheless, it suddenly, so to speak, straightens itself and strikes you in the face that you try and alter these things too much, nature, men, whatever it is, and then something called human nature, or the nature of society, or the dark forces, or the unconscious, or the forces of production, or the idea with a capital I, it doesn't matter what the name of this vast entity is, it then proceeds to strike you and strike you down. That it itself into the imagination of a great many persons in Europe who would certainly not have described themselves as romantics and fed the streams of all kinds of theodicies the Marxist theodicy, the Hegelian theodicy, and a great many theodicies, Spengler's theodicy, Professor Toynbee's theodicy, and a great many other theological writings of our time. That, I think, is where it begins. And this fed the stream of paranoia also, in the sense that it again conjured up the notion of something stronger than us, some huge impersonal force, which could neither be investigated nor, as it were, deflected. And this, of course, did make the whole universe far more terrifying than it had been in the 18th century. As for the third of these um, factors, which I promised to mention, Wilhelm Meister by Goethe, that was simply a novel which the Romantics admired, not so much for its power of storytelling, but for two reasons. First of all, because it was an account of a self-formation by a man of genius. How a man can take himself in hand and by the free exercise of his noble and unrestrained will makes himself into something. This is presumably Goethe's creative autobiography as an artist. But more than that, they also liked the fact that there were very sharp transitions in this novel. From a piece of sober prose or some scientific description of, say, the temperature of water or the particular structure or a particular kind of garden, Goethe suddenly goes off into ecstatic and poetical and lyrical accounts of one kind or another and bursts into poetry and then as sharply and as, as quickly returns back to perfectly melodious but severe prose. Now these sharp transitions from poetry to prose, from ecstasy to scientific descriptions, appear to them to be a marvelous weapon for the purpose of blowing up an overset reality. This is how works of art should be written. They should be written not in accordance with rules, not in accordance, not to be copies of some kind of given nature, of some rerum natura, some kind of structure of things of which the work of art is an explanation or of which the work of art is worse still, a copy or a photograph. The business of a work of art is to liberate us. And it liberates us by, as it were, ignoring these superficial symmetries of nature, these superficial rules, and by sharp transitions from one mode into another, from poetry to prose, from theology to botany and so forth, knocks down a great many of the conventional divisions by which we are hemmed in and cribbed and in some way imprisoned. 
I don't think that Goethe regarded this as at all a valid analysis of his work. He looked with a certain nervousness upon these romantics, whom he and Schiller too regarded as rather rootless um, bohemians, third-rate artists, which they, some of them certainly were, persons of rather wild and inconsequential life, whom nevertheless, because they admired him so much and worshipped him so well, he didn't wish altogether to despise or to ignore. And so a somewhat ambivalent relation occurred between them, in the course of which they admired him as the greatest of German geniuses, but despised his Philistine tastes, despised his kowtowing to the Grand Duke of Weimar, regarded him as having sold out in many ways, and having, so to speak, started as a bold and original genius, ended as a kind of silken courtier. On the other hand, he looked upon them as poor artists, covering up a certain lack of creative genius by a certain unnecessary wildness of expression, but at the same time, Germans, admirers, the only audience whom for a time he had, and therefore not to be neglected, not to be kicked away too recklessly. That was, roughly speaking, the relation between them, but it remained a very uncomfortable relation until the end of his life, and certainly Goethe himself never lent himself to romanticism. When towards the end of his life he said, romanticism is disease, classicism is health, that is his fundamental sermon. Even Faust, which the Romantics didn't particularly admire, even Faust, who goes through all kinds of Romantic transformations, who certainly is tossed upon the wild waves. There are a great many passages in which it is clear that he's compared to a wild and rushing torrent leaping from rock to rock, constantly thirsting for new experiences provided by Mephistopheles. Faust, in the end, is a drama of reconciliation. In the end, the point about Faust, after having killed Gretchen, after having killed Philemon and Baucis, after having performed a good many crimes in both in part one and part two, there is some kind of harmonious realization, the harmonious release and resolution of all these conflicts, although no doubt they have cost a great deal of blood and suffering. But blood and suffering were nothing to go to on the whole. That is to say, like Hegel, on the whole he supposed that the divine harmonies could only be made by sharp clashes, by violent disharmonies, which from a greater height would be perceived to be contributory factors to some enormous harmony. But that is certainly not romantic. That is, if anything, it's anti-romantic, because the general tendency of that is to say there is a solution, a hard, difficult solution, perhaps only to be perceived by the mystical eye, nevertheless a solution. And of course, in his novels, Goethe preached exactly what the romantics detested. In Hermann and Dorothea, in Wahlverwandtschaften, the whole sermon is that if an emotional knot occurs, if there is some kind of fearful complication between, let us say, a married woman and her lover, on no account may the easy solution of divorce or the easy solution of the abandonment of wedlock be adopted, but on the contrary, resignation, suffering, bowing to the yoke of convention, preservation of the pillars of society. The sermon is essentially that of order, self-restraint, discipline, and the crushing of any kind of chaotic or anti-legal factors. This to the romantics is absolute poison. There is nothing they dislike more than this. In their own private lives, they were, some of them, certainly somewhat disorderly. The cenacle, the, the little group of romantics who gathered in Jena, the two brothers Schlegel, for a time Fichte, Schleiermacher in Berlin, and Schelling, on the whole believed and preached, in the most violent terms, the beauties and the importance of total freedom, including that of free love. August Wilhelm Schlegel married a lady because she was about to have a child. She was a revolutionary German lady of considerable intellect, imprisoned for a time by the Germans in Mainz for having, I think, collaborated with the French revolutionaries, and then, with graceful feeling, yielded her up to Schelling. <laughs> this was also the, earlier the case in the case of Schiller and Jean-Paul, though no marriage actually occurred, and so on. But quite apart from their personal relationships, the great novel, which, of course, in a sense, incorporated their view of life, and which certainly shocked 
um, Goethe profoundly, was a novel Lucinda, which is not perhaps a work of great literary merit, but which Friedrich Schlegel published in the early 19th century, and which was a kind of Lady Chatterley of its time. It was a highly erotic novel, giving very violent descriptions indeed of uh, various types of lovemaking, as well as containing sermons of a romantic kind about the necessity of freedom and self-expression. The heart of Lucinda, quite apart from its erotic side, is um, the description of what free relationship between human beings can be. In particular, analogies are constantly made with a little baby called Guillemette, who, who throws her legs in the air in a very free and unrestrained manner. And the hero exclaims and says, this is how one should live. Here is, some, here is a little child, naked and unrestrained by convention. It wears no clothes, it bows to no authority, it believes in no uh, conventional directors of its life. And above all, it is idle, it has no task to do. Idleness is the last spark that is left to us from the divine paradise from which humanity was once expelled. Freedom, the capacity for throwing one's legs in the air, to do anything one wishes, that is the last privilege that we have in this fearful world, this awful causal treadmill where nature presses upon us with such fearful savagery, and so on and so on. But uh, the novel caused a very profound shock and was defended by the great Berlin preacher, uh, Schleiermacher, in language not altogether unreminiscent of uh, the ways in which various um, British clergymen defended Lady Chatterley's lover not very long ago. <laughs> that is to say, just as Lady Chatterley's lover was represented as being so far from being anti-spiritual in character, as being in some sense moving in the same direction as or almost as a prop of Christian orthodoxy, so uh, Lucinda, which was a pornographic novel of the fourth order, was represented by the loyal Schleiermacher as being entirely spiritual in character. All its physical descriptions were described as allegorical. And everything in it was described simply as a great hymn and sermon to spiritual freedom of man, freed from the shackles of false convention. Well, I think later in life, Schleiermacher tended on the whole to retreat from this position. And on the whole, does probably, probably does greater credit to his um, kindness and his loyalty and his generosity of heart than to his critical acumen. Be that as it may, the purpose of Lucinda was, of course, to break down conventions. Wherever you could break down conventions, you must do so. Perhaps the most interesting and acute case of the breaking down of conventions is to be found in the stories of uh, the plays of Tieck, for example, and the stories of uh, the famous storyteller E.T.A. Hoffman. You see, the general proposition is, of the 18th and indeed of all previous centuries, as I uh, tirelessly repeat, is that there is a nature of things. There is a rerum natura. There is a structure of things. For the Romantics, this was profoundly false. There was no structure of things because that would hem us in, that would suffocate us. There must be a field for action. The potential is more real than the actual. What is made is dead. Once you have constructed a work of art, abandon it. Because once it is constructed, it's there, it's done for, it's yesterday's calendar. Last year's calendar, I mean. What is made, what has been constructed, what has been, so to speak, already understood, must be abandoned. Glimpses, fragments, intimations, mystical illumination, that is the only way to seize reality. Because any attempt to circumscribe it, any attempt to give a coherent account, any attempt to be harmonious, to have a beginning and a middle and an end, is essentially a perversion and caricature of what is in its essence chaotic and shapeless. And a beating stream, a tremendous great stream of self-realizing will, the idea of imprisoning which is absurd and blasphemous. That, I think, is the real fervid center of romantic faith. Hence, you get in Hoffman stories about which there is a perfectly decent city councillor, a book collector, I think, who sits in a dressing gown in his room and is normally surrounded by old manuscripts. And outside his door, uh, there is a brass knocker. And the brass knocker, however, at times turns into a hideous um, apple vendor. 
And sometimes she's an apple vendor, and sometimes a brass knocker. The brass knocker sometimes winks like the apple vendor. The apple vendor occasionally behaves like a brass knocker. As for the, her master, as for the respectable counselor, sometimes he sits in his chair, sometimes he gets into a bowl of punch and disappears into its steam and goes up in the air with the spirits, or he occasionally dissolves himself in this punch and gets drunk by other people and has peculiar adventures thereafter. Now, this, you see, which is an ordinary sort of fantastic stories in Hoffman, you see, of which he was very famous. Uh, again, whenever you begin a story by him, you can never tell there is a cat in the room. The cat may be a cat, but it may, of course, also be a transformed human being. The cat can't quite tell. It tells you that it can't quite tell. And this casts a certain air of uncertainty about all the proceedings, which is perfectly deliberate. When Hoffman was walking across the bridge in Berlin, he often felt as if he was encapsulated in a glass bottle. He wasn't sure whether the people he saw around him were human beings or dolls. This, I think, was a genuine piece of psychological delusion. He was, in some respects, psychologically not wholly normal. But at the same time, in his fiction, the primary motif always is the transformability of everything into everything. Tieck writes a play in which there is, I think, Puss in Boots, in which the king says to uh, the prince who comes to see him, you who come from so far away, uh, how is it you will speak our language so well? To which the prince says, hush. And the king says, why do you say hush? And the prince says, if, I don't, if we don't cease talking about the subject, the play cannot continue. <laughs> and then some member of the audience made to get up and say, but this is a flouting of all possible rules of realism. It's intolerable that characters should discuss the play between them. And another play by Tieck, and this is very deliberate. In another play by Tieck, you have a man, Scaramouche, I think, is riding on a donkey, and suddenly there is a thunderstorm. And he says, but there's nothing about this in the play. In my, uh, in my part, there's nothing about rain. I'm getting very wet. He rings the bell, and the mechanic comes in. He says to the mechanic, why is it raining? He says, the audience likes thunderstorms. To which uh, Scaramouche says, in, 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 in dignified historical plays, it can't rain. And the mechanic says, yes, it can, produces examples, and says, anyhow, he's been paid to do it. And then someone gets up in the audience and says, you must cease this intolerable bickering. The play must have some degree of illusion. It's quite impossible for a play to go on and for characters in it to discuss its technique, and so on. Then there is, in the very same play, there is a play within a play, and within that play, another play. The audiences, the audiences of all three plays talk to each other. And in particular, one person who stands somewhat outside the play discusses the relations of the various audiences to each other and so forth. Now, the purpose of all this, and after it has, of course, its analog in all kinds of other, in the 19th century, of course, its predecessor of Pirandello, its predecessor of Dadaism, its predecessor of surrealism, of the theory of the absurd, that is where it all begins. And the point of it is, of course, is to try and confuse reality with appearance as far as possible, to in some way break down the barrier between illusion and reality, to break down the barrier between dreams and reality, between night and day, between the conscious and the unconscious, in order to produce this sense of the absolutely unbarred universe, of the wallless universe, and of perpetual change, perpetual transformation, out of which someone with a powerful will can mold, if only temporarily, anything he pleases. That, I think, is the central doctrine of the Romantic movement, and naturally it has its political analogue as well. When romantic political authors begin to say, the state is not a machine, the state is not a gadget. If the state were a machine, people would have thought of something else, but they haven't. The state is either a natural growth or it is an emanation of some mysterious primal force which we cannot understand and which has some kind of theological authority. When Adam Müller says that Christ died not for only for individuals, but for states, which is a very extreme statement of theological politics. When that is said, and then explains that the state is a mystical institution, which is profoundly rooted in the deepest possible and the least fathomable and the least intelligible um, aspects of human existence, which are essentially in perpetual movement, in perpetual crisscrossing movement, the attempt to reduce which to constitutions, to laws, is doomed to failure because nothing written lives. 
No constitution, if it is written, can possibly survive because writing is dead and the constitution must be a living flame within the hearts of human beings who live together as one passionate, mystical family. When that kind of talk begins, you see that this particular doctrine begins to penetrate into regions for which it was perhaps not originally intended. And there, naturally, it begins to have very serious and very considerably serious consequences. The last point about which I wish to speak, and that very briefly, is the concept of romantic irony, which is exactly the same. Irony was an invention by Schlegel, and the idea of irony is that whenever you see honest citizens sitting about their business, whenever you see a well-composed poem composed in accordance with the rules, whenever you see a peaceful institution which protects the lives and property of citizens, laugh at it, mock at it, be ironical, blow it up, point out that the opposite is equally true. The only weapon there is against death for him and against ossification and against any form of the stabilization and, so to speak, the freezing of the life stream is by what he calls irony with a capital I. It's an obscure concept, but the general notion of it is that corresponding to any proposition that anyone may utter, there must be at least three other propositions, each of which is contrary to it and each of which is equally true, all of which must be believed particularly because they are contradictory. And they must be believed because they are contradictory, because that is the only way of escaping from the hideous logical straitjacket, which is what he's frightened of. Hideous straitjacket, whether in the form of physical causality, whether in the form of state-created laws, whether in the form of aesthetic rules about how to compose poems, whether in the form of rules of perspective or rules of historical painting or rules of um, other kinds of painting laid down by various mandarins in France in the 18th century, this must be escaped from. It cannot be escaped by simply denying them, because the denial will simply bring about another orthodoxy. It will simply bring about another set of rules contradictory of the original rules. Rules must be blown up as such. And so these two elements, the free untrammeled will and the denial of the fact that there is a nature of things, the attempt to blow up and explode, so to speak, the very notion of a stable structure of anything, these are the deepest and, in a sense, the most insane elements in this extremely valuable and important movement. In my uh, final lecture, I shall talk about the relation of music to this, because music, of course, is the favorite art of all these people, for reasons which can be made plain, and then go on from there to discuss its effect in countries outside Germany, in France and, and in England, and finally, upon such influence as it seems to me, and it seems to me a very profound and an important one, which it has in the present day.